The Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio present Savor 2016, an American craft beer and food experience from Washington, D.C. This salon is from Saturday, June 4th. Fodor Beer, a search for delicious. Presented by Phil Wymore from Perennial Artisan Ales and Nathan Zinder and Tim Lake from Right Proper Brewing Company. I'd like to introduce myself. My name is Andy Sparhawk. I'm the craft beer program coordinator for the Brewers Association. Savor an American craft beer and food experience is brought to you by the Brewers Association. So thank you for coming. Uh, we appreciate it. We love coming out here every year. Uh, quick note is that uh, we are recording all these salons like we always do uh, from the generous help of Craft Beer Radio. Uh, they scrambled last night and got all those salons uh, from last night on their uh, podcast, uh, and we will uh, be streaming them on, on craftbeer.com as well. Uh, I say that because, uh, you know, we, can, we got good acoustics in here and everything, and, and some of you speak really loud, but if you do have a question, indulge me, make me run over to you and, and put a microphone in front of your face uh, just so we can pick it all up uh, so it's not just dead air on these podcasts. Um, this is a really great uh, salon. I, I, I'll say that these two breweries, I travel around and, and I see a lot of comments on, on our website, craftbeer.com, um, and some of the names that always come up are, first of all, Right Proper, and I've heard nothing but great things from Right Proper being here in D.C. this week, uh, and Perennial. And uh, just really, really excited to introduce uh, Phil from Perennial and Andrew from, from Right Proper to talk to you. I'm sorry? Nathan. I'm sorry, Nathan. <laughs> Shoot. Uh, Nathan Zinder from Right Proper and Phil from, from Perennial. Um, they're going to be talking about fooders today, uh, and also we got a, a cool cheese uh, uh, um, experience uh, for you. So without further ado, please give it up for Phil and Nathan. Is this on? All right. I was going to stand in the middle here um, so we can have a very... Uh, comfortable vibe here. Um, so my name is Nathan Zender, and I'm the uh, the, uh, the head brewer and then one of uh, the owners of Right Proper Brewing Company uh, here in Washington, D.C. Um, so the concept of Right Proper started about f five years ago. Um, it's just a sort of a concept. Um, uh, uh, it was uh, the idea of uh, Thor Cheston, uh, who's one of the, the, the owners, um, we had known each other for a long time. Um, he had started a really wonderful beer program at, uh, has anybody been to Pizzeria Paradiso in Georgetown? To the basement, the beer area? So he was responsible in starting that concept that was maybe a little over 10 years ago, something like that. And that was pretty revolutionary for DC. Before that, DC didn't really have any bar that had rotating draft lines, right? So you go to a bar and you'd have the, the 10 beers and you go a month later and it'd be the 10 beers, maybe a seasonal shift with you know, a brand. But there, this was a new idea of going in. So as soon as a, a keg would kick, a completely different beer would, would go on in that line, be cleaned, and then that was a new concept too in a lot of bars, I think, in D.C. Uh, the line would be cleaned, and then a new beer would go on. And um, there was a very heavy focus on Belgian-style beers uh, um, for, uh, when, when that, that project started. And so I would go once a week for the happy hour because I'm a frugal person, and I would try 
four or five different beers. Uh, with, uh, a lot of, I was having my, my first experience with a lot of these sort of wonderful Belgian breweries, um, first triples, first saisons, uh, things like that. Very informative time. And then Thor moved away, did a project in Philadelphia, came back, uh, ran the program at Brasserie Beck, which is another wonderful uh, beer bar uh, with a Belgian focus here in D.C., not far from here at all. Um, and then he started coming up with this idea of doing a brew pub in D.C. Um, that would be in a neighborhood. So D.C. had some brew pubs, some really wonderful brew pubs. They're right over here, just a few blocks away. There's a Gordon Biersch, and then there's a District Chop House, and District Chop House is a reimagining of a rock bottom in a sort of a nicer setting with sort of stakes and things. And so we had a, a brew pub culture both of those are owned by a large entity, so they're both owned by the same company. I think 70 or more brew pubs in the United States. So what DC we thought was missing was a brew pub that was in a real neighborhood that could be supported, not something that wasn't on the tourist trail, that could be supported um, you know, by people of that neighborhood. And you could come back night to night, and I would know who you were, and your money would be staying in that zip code, and that's a wonderful thing. Um, so that's what we, the idea was, and I had... Uh, to date had only been uh, uh, um, uh, a home brewer. Uh, I sort of turned my house into a, into a personal brewery. And um, so I was ambitiously brewing a barrel of a beer at, a, at home at a time, sort of in, in the basement. And, um, you know, I'd known Thor and I'd given him beers for years. And so he comes to me with this idea, you know, about doing um, uh, this neighborhood brewery. I'm a local, local guy. I was very much in, into that idea of being in a neighborhood. Um, and I was given sort of free reign with the brewing program, which, um, which is very exciting. And so we opened up um, at 624 T Street. Anybody been to the brew pub? All right, thank you for your support. Um, it's very close to here. We're actually open until probably like, how late are we open tonight? Late, like one or so. So if you've got no other plans, then head on over uh, to 624 T Street Northwest, which is just like less than a mile from here. So, um, um, so the, um, uh, but so from, from, uh, we had this five barrel brew, uh, a used brewing system there. And then, um, from day one, we have, we're having a split of beers, but, uh, Saccharomyces beers, so Burgess beers, um, uh, open fermented, uh, beers with a blend of traditional, uh, uh, sort of farmhouse, uh, uh, yeast strains, and then beers, uh, house mixed culture with, uh, multiple strange Britannomyces, um, some Saccharomyces strains and some uh, uh, Lactobacillus that we did in stainless steel, open fermented. Um, and we were, uh, you know, within the, it's a workshop brewery, so in the first year we were doing, say, you know, I think 70 different recipes or something like that. So every week you'd come in, there'd actually be two or three new beers on. Um, so um, it was a great way of working through different ideas and seeing what kind of families of beers and flavors we wanted to do um, as we grew. About a year into it, we found we were profitable. And we were like, wow, that's great because it's a brew pub. It's a restaurant. Restaurant is a tough business, um, but it was profitable. And we did have investors. And so there's an idea of doing um, a production brewery. The laws also changed in D.C. Um, to allow uh, tasting rooms at production breweries to sell pints of beer. So it almost becomes a brew pub without doing food. Um, and so, uh, so another a neighborhood gathering place, you could come and spend time there. So that sort of informed a decision to do a production brewery. Um, so we opened that production brewery last December in my home neighborhood in Brooklyn and Northeast DC. Anybody been to the production? Yeah, all right, huh? Thank you again for that. Um, that one is not open as late. So that will be closing at, t- at 10, t- uh, 10 p.m. tonight. But 
every other day it, it's open. Um, so please come check us out there. That's where we have the fooders, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight. So what we did was we take this, uh, we took this same uh, mixed culture that we've been doing in stainless steel open fermented at the brew pub, and we took that culture and we moved it over to the production brewery, um, and we were able to source um, uh, these fooders that, that, that we use, and now we're doing that same mixed culture instead of in stainless steel open now in, uh, in, in, these, uh, in these wonderful uh, fooders that we're able to source. Um, I'm going to talk about the beer that we're having now, going to talk about the fooders that we use, why we use them. Um, Phil is going to pour two beers after this. Um, he's going to talk about how they use fooders, why they use fooders, how they use fooders differently than we use uh, fooders. There's, they use them in a very different way. Um, and so this idea of fooder beer, I'm not sure what it is. I think it's an evolving thing. Um, it's really an environment that we're, that we're using, um, and we all use that in different ways to get much different flavors. I think that our beers are radically different uh, flavors from, from Phil, so we can actually see, see the swath of what food or beer can actually be, and maybe we can start defining those terms amongst ourselves, because uh, it's still a pretty, pretty open and vague sort of term. Um, so the beer that we're having now is called Ornithology. It's an outgrowth of a beer that, uh, so this only comes out of the production brewery, always comes out of Fooder. Um, uh, from day one at the brew pub, we were doing um, our take on what we think a beer called Grisette was. Um, so we took the idea of what we think that beer was, which was a sort of a working class beer that, uh, with a high fermentation character and a certain amount of wheat at a lower gravity that would have been made you know, on a, on a farm. <laughs> Stead Brewery 150 years ago. Um, and so we took some of those ideas, a dry beer with a high fermentation character, yeast-driven, um, and um, uh, uh, we did a beer called Ornette, uh, which is a play on the name Grisette, and a tribute to uh, Ornette Coleman, who passed away last year, which was very sad, very inspiring uh, person for me personally. Um, but um, uh, when we opened up the, uh, the production brewery, we took the exact same recipe for Ornette, um, uh, and then we started doing it, not just open fermented with two traditional Saison yeast strains, but in fooder with our full mixed culture with the Britannomyces and then Lactobacillus 2, and now in oak, in the big oak fooders. And so it's the same recipe. So we still brew Ornette at T Street, Shaw, and we're brewing Ornithology in Brooklyn. You can have the beer side by side, and that can start informing what happens when you're doing um, a beer in food or in inoculated wooden environment with Britannomyces as opposed to just with Saccharomyces. They're radically different beers. I love them both equally, but they're radically different and they have the exact same water and they, they use the exact same mash temperatures and they use the exact same hopping, you know? So it's really neat to see the influence of um, our house mixed culture as opposed to open fermentation. Um, um, with uh, t those two farmhouse yeast strains. Um, so this beer um, or is, was renamed Ornithology uh, because it is radically different from Ornette and we continue to brew Ornette. So we just did a slight play on the name Ornette to Ornithology, so the study of birds. Um, and um, uh, this beer is, um, uh, it's, I like to say it's our house character writ large, right? So we do four, right now we're currently doing four different fooder beers. Um, and this one is the lowest gravity, has the least amount of hopping, you know, it it's, doesn't have a lot of um, um, uh, specialty malt in it, right? It's just, it's, pale, it's Pilsner malt, it's got some wheat in there, 
um, and just a very, some very light hopping. So really almost all the flavor and all the life animating force is from this mix of yeast and bacteria. So this is really our house character writ large. So this, is, uh, the, this same uh, mix of yeast is used in all those same food or beers. We're gonna, at the, the last beer we have is done with the same mixed culture. It's a beer to guard. It's going to taste quite a bit different, but you'll see some connection because of the, 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 the life force or, or the, the mixed yeast culture that's being used. Um, uh, I'm going to talk about the fooders um, for a minute, and then I'm going to let Phil talk for a little bit too because I think he's anxious to speak as well. Um, so uh, the, the fooders that, that we got, um, we were super lucky. Um, I was looking for about a year, usually work with a broker, to try to source um, um, a fooder. A lot of times they would come maybe from Europe or a long-used fooder from the uh, West Coast, like California or Pacific Northwest from a winery. Um, and, you know, I would get a quick email from someone that says, I've got this fooder, do you want it? And you're like, oh, well, I get some details. And then by the time you get back to them, it's been sold, you know, within minutes a lot of times. And so I got a tip about some fooders that were one year old and they were in Virginia. And I had never talked to anyone in Virginia that knew of a winery that was actually using fooders. And so we're really lucky. It was Stone Tower, a winery in Leesburg. Um, they used them for one season and then they wanted ones that were twice as large. And so that worked out great for us. Um, um, so two of them were used for white wine. One had been used for red variety. Um, uh, they're 45 hectoliters, um, so it's about, um, that's about 38 barrels or so, which marries up really well with the rest of our equipment. So we have a 15-barrel brew house, and all our tanks are 30 barrels. Um, and so uh, they, uh, uh, they had all the modern fittings. They have a chilling plate, so we can do temperature control. And so they, have, they very much function like many of our other tanks, but they don't have a conical bottom. So we actually start all the fermentation for these fooder beers in stainless steel for about a week. Um, that way we can use the mechanical advantage of a conical bottom. So the yeast goes to work, drop, starts attenuating down, compacts in the bottom of the cone, and then we can efficiently pull just the middle run of that yeast, which is the most vital uh, yeast that we want. And then we can move that beer over into fooder, usually for about another at least six weeks of maturation. So those fooders, when we first got them, um, you know, had been sulfured, um, so there was no um, microbiology in them. They were, you know, there's nothing living inside them because nothing can really live in sulfur gas. Um, we rinsed them out really, really well, did some citric acid, rinsed that again really, really well, and then put beer right into it. And uh, like I said, we usually have beers in there for about uh, six weeks or so. It really depends, doing sensory and seeing when they're ready, but that's r a rough estimate of how long the beers are in there. Um, and then... Um, you know, we drain the fooder completely for most of the beers and then uh, clean it out with water and citric acid and water again and then have another batch ready to go in that same day. Um, it's very important to not let the, these fooders um, sit half full. Um, what we're trying to do is keep them completely full so that there's not too much oxygen getting in there. Um, uh, creating issues with acetobacter, which would create acetic acid, which is an un and any more than the small threshold can be a very unpleasing um, uh, sort of salad dressing kind of vinegar uh, type acid. Um, but yeah, so all our beers are usually, you can say about six weeks or so in, in fooder um, that's been completely inoculated with our house culture. So all our, um, all these uh, yeast and um, Britannomyces and lactic culture just sort of living in that wood. So we push beer in there and it takes on our identity. And then um, right now we're draft only, so then that beer um, goes out uh, th uh, to uh, 
right now we're just draft only in the DC area, um, and then available at our uh, tap room, and then um, hopefully soon we'll be taking on bottle conditioning of these food or beers. I'm going to let talk, uh, Phil talk for a few minutes. <laughs> oh, I think you guys oh, have the second beer. One thing I was wondering, since you know everybody has this first beer before we move on, are we moving on to the second beer, or do we want to talk about the cheese that could go with Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, do we want to talk about cheese for a minute? Yep. I feel I, I'm Tim, by the way. I'm, I run the cheese program at uh, Right Proper. Um, it would probably be best to talk about cheese so you don't have them sitting in front of you untouched. Um, basically, so four cheeses uh, organized with 12 o'clock. It should be the the white goat cheese um, at 12 at noon time. So that is the only goat cheese on the plate, um, and that is uh, Coupole from Vermont. It's basically a goat, fresh springtime, almost a triple cream goat cheese in a way. Um, going to three o'clock is Sequatchie Cove in Tennessee. That's a Nickajack, which is a cider washed uh, cow's milk cheese. Um, raw. It's a raw cheese. At uh, six o'clock is a Funkemeister from Haystack Mountain in Colorado. It's a pasteurized, pretty funky cow's milk cheese. And then at 9 o'clock is Alpha Tolman from uh, Jasper Hill up in Vermont, which is uh, raw cow's milk cheese. Um, one way I just want to tie this all in um, with the feeder. Um, so cheese, basically all like artisan cheeses are aged on wooden boards, and just as the feeder uh, aged beers is wood. Um, and it's been under attack a lot lately. I don't know if anyone keeps up with news like this, but uh, the FDA has shut down all um, wood-aged cheeses about a year ago, uh, which means pretty much any cheese you see on that plate would have been off this plate. Um, so if you have interest in it, read up about it and um, support the cheese community because it's definitely always under attack. Um, I'm not exactly sure which beers are supposed to go with which, but I'm pretty sure... <laughs> um, at 12 o'clock is the ornithology with the goat cheese, really light, um, spritzy, um, easy uh, springtime pairing. And then the Baron Corvo, uh, which is right proper, with the Alpha Tolman at 9 o'clock for its kind of robust, nutty, kind of uh, dark fruit character. That's about it. Yeah. So the, uh, the two wash rind cheeses on here, uh, you know, with the clear, you know, the rinds on them. Those go with, uh, with both of the uh, perennial beers. So just that helps clarify too. Uh, I'm Phil Wymore. I'm the founder and, uh, and a brewer at Perennial Artisan Ales. Um, we've been open for about five years. Our five-year anniversary is coming up um, here in uh, September. And uh, I've been in the, the brewing industry for a little bit. I, uh, I started out um, while I was in college at uh, University of Missouri, Columbia. Um, I was at a uh, brew pub for about six months, just sort of cut my teeth a little bit and, uh, you know, realized that, uh, hey, beer making is, uh, I think, what I want to do for the rest of my life, you know, hands down. Um, so I moved on from, uh, from the brew pub that I was at to uh, Goose Island uh, back in 2006. Um, so I was there from 2006 to 2009, and... Uh, it was at a time where Goose Island was uh, still an independent craft brewer and uh, growing very rapidly. Um, 
think when I came into Goose Island, they were doing about 50,000 barrels. And then when I left in 2009, they were doing about 100,000 barrels. So it was just all growth. And it was a really great opportunity for me um, because I was only there for three years. And, and two of those years, you know, they promoted me and I got to manage all the cellaring operations, which kind of put me on the path to starting my own brewery. You know, I was, uh, definitely, I didn't have any interest in starting a brewery when I first got into this. I just wanted to be a career brewer. I, uh, I love the industry. I love beer, uh, you know, working with my hands, being able to uh, be creative, being able to geek out on science, and, you know, all the social aspects that come along with, with uh, the beer industry, too. It was uh, the best damn thing I'd ever, ever realized. I didn't know work could be so cool. Um, but it's hard work, too, you know. You just, there's a lot of cleaning. There's a lot of, uh, of detail-oriented part of the business, but uh, it doesn't seem like work when you love it. And um, so, so like I said, I had the good fortune of uh, being able to manage there and see a lot of other angles uh, during a very intense growth period. And um, it prepped me pretty well. Uh, so I started, my last year there, I started working on a business plan for Perennial. And uh, there's another brewery in Chicago called Half Acre that was just getting started up um, about 2009, and uh, the head brewer that they had brought on uh, had quit on them right when they pretty much opened their doors with tanks full of beer. So they were, I mean, lack of a better word, they're pretty fucked. Uh, and uh, so it was a great opportunity for me. So I kind of came in there and uh, really established a lot of systems for them, kind of put them on a really nice path. And the exchange, and it was totally transparent too. So they knew uh, that I was trying to start a brewery and that I was a little bit of a rental at that point. And so, uh, you know, I got to really kind of put them on a nice path, and they, uh, you know, opened up their books to me and let me see all the things that would let me fine-tune my plan. And, uh, you know, I started Perennial pretty cheaply uh, as a result of that, and that was, that was really helpful. It was a really bootstrappy kind of thing. Um, so that was all in Chicago, our breweries in St. Louis. Uh, the link there, my wife, Emily, uh, who's also very involved in our brewery, she... Um, She's from St. Louis, and uh, you know my family's from around Kansas City, so you know and we started a family uh, when I was at Half Acre too. So uh, you know it just made sense for us to kind of you know move to another market that was closer to our families where we had some support. And the opportunity in St. Louis was really fantastic. Um, I mean everybody knows that uh, St. Louis is uh, the land of Bud, but uh, it has been for you know a century or so. But uh, you know St. Louis is. Um, you know, it used to be a very vibrant beer city. In the late 1800s was sort of the peak of beer production there. Uh, I think there was something like 45 breweries uh, in St. Louis. Uh, Anheuser-Busch uh, was the sort of the lone survivor uh, after Prohibition uh, for the most part. And, uh, you know, and then Schlafly came along in 1991 and really sort of prepped the market for craft beer, which we're all uh, very thankful for in St. Louis. Um, so we opened, like I said, we opened a perennial in 2011, and uh, we kind of, there was not just us, there was uh, four breweries that opened up in the city limits of St. Louis that are all micros, they all package, they all have tasting rooms. We have very flexible laws in Missouri that allow us to, you know, sell beer over the bar, sell beer to go, and also package beer for distribution as well. So it's a, you know, it's a very nice uh, model for getting other revenue streams going that kind of encourages survival of a young craft brewery. And uh, like I said, Schlafly really prepped the market. And so um, 
it was kind of what I call the class of 2011. Uh, there's a brewery uh, that's also distributed here, Urban Chestnut. Uh, another brewery that's distributed here in D.C., Four Hands, us, and, oh, actually all of us, uh, Civil Life, too. All, all four of us distribute here in D.C., too, so, which is really cool. Um, yeah, so all of us are doing really well, and uh, the scene there is very vibrant. If you're ever passing through St. Louis, it's a great beer town, uh, along with, I think it mirrors a lot of what uh, you see across the nation uh, in terms of what's happening with craft beer. You know, uh, breweries that are popping up that have a voice in, in a local market, um, and you know all the really cool bottle shops and beer bars and everything. You know the retailers that come along with that and create a lot of fun places to go and experience craft beer. So uh, please come to St. Louis and check us out uh, as well. Um, so you know just talk a little bit about perennial and what we do. Um, you know I, I think a little bit maybe similar to what Nathan said too. You know we we brewed a lot of different styles when we first opened in our year, first year or two. You know, a lot of that's just to try to find your identity. You know, it's kind of like being a teenager and, you know, just trying on different things, you know. And so we, you know, we brewed a lot of different styles. And over time, we've become more focused. Um, you know, we've kind of found what we're good at, what we like to produce. And also, we listen to the market, too, and see, uh, see what they like as well. And so I'd say what we're known for most um, in circles outside of St. Louis is a beer called Abraxas. Uh, which is a Mexican chocolate stout that we do. And we do a lot of riffs on that. So one of the beers that we have uh, at our table downstairs is 17, which is a mint chocolate stout, where Abraxas is a sort of a Mexican chocolate stout. And then we do an all, another uh, big stout called Sump. And so all of these are the same base beer with different finishes. Um, our year-round beers are sort of like sessionable Belgian-style beer. We do a, um, we do a blonde ale. Uh, we do a Saison steeped on chamomile called Saison de Lis, and we do a Belgian pale ale called Hommel beer that's draft only. And uh, all of these beers are between 5 and 6% alcohol, so the idea is just to have a, you know, some sessionable, easy to drink. And then, uh, you know, we've been doing this barrel age thing too, which I think we're in some ways a little bit less known for, but we're really excited. Uh, right now we're going through an expansion where we're really prepping ourselves to be able to produce a lot more barrel age beer. Um, which makes me really excited. And so, uh, like I said, we were really bootstrappy. Um, you know, we, so our building is a Coca-Cola plant where we have about half of the uh, footprint and uh, we're kind of just climbing all over the top of each other. Uh, we have an eight and a half barrel system, two vessel. All of our beer comes off of that little system. Uh, Nathan was talking about, you know, how his brew house fits his fooders very well. Our fooders are our biggest tanks. They're 70 hectoliter, which is about 60 barrel, and it takes seven turns, seven brews off of our brew house to fill to fill one of those. So it uh, gives you an idea of scale. Like our, our brew house is really tiny. It's like uh, we always joke that it's just a big home brew system, essentially. So, um, but uh, so we have just installed. Uh, so we've gotten the second half of the building, we've installed a 15 barrel system that's going to allow us to, we're going to produce all the clean beer on that side and then all the sour beer on the, uh, on the original brew house. So I'm really excited about that. So, um, so just talk a little bit about the fooders that we have too. Like I said, they're 60 barrel. Uh, they are uh, French oak. They're uh, coopered in France and they're uh, used by a high-end winery in Napa. Uh, that produces uh, really fantastic award-winning Cabernet Sauvignons, uh, Sauvignon Blanc, Pinot Noir, and uh, they use these fooders uh, two times, and then they're basically, they, they don't want them anymore, and it's great for us because, you know, so far we haven't really experimented much with new oak, 
Uh, I think brewers are often very sensitive to oak in their beer, uh, new fresh oak. Um, you know, it can come across very heavy-handed and, you know, uh, sort of outstrip uh, or um, outcompete a lot of the yeast characters and other things that you might be looking for in, in, a, in a beer that comes out of them. So uh, it's really nice to have these fooders from a winery that's used them twice and they're a little bit more oak neutral. Um, but we do plan on playing around some new fooders too. There's a, um, there's a, a company called Fooder Crafters that is in our local uh, local area that is uh, producing a lot of fooders for a lot of breweries across country right now. And uh, we're gonna we plan on getting some of their fooders as well. And that's with American oak, which is uh, you correct. Know, uh, com- you know, so traditionally the uh, fooders would have been made with you know French oak or French or oak from. You know, Slovenia or Hungary or something like that. So it's it was a big sell, I think, for or, or a, a sort of a sales job that they had to do to sell brewers on on. Most people know American oak from uh, sort of bourbon barrels, you know, which is seen as sort of a raw, you know, like uh, bourbon barrels made of American oak is meant to be used for three years and really they're sort of done with it. So they don't put the sort of uh, uh, craftsmanship or, you know, it just has a different sort of image. So it's, I think they've done a really good job pitching the case for the American oak that they're using. Mm-hmm. And they're beautiful too. They're, I mean, they're so well constructed. They're, uh, we do have one in our, uh, in our cellar that's uh, owned by uh, Corey King, who started Side Project Brewing under, under the same roof as us. Um, and I'm just kind of, we're, as we're creating more room, I, I want to get some of those too. Um, just to talk a little bit about the, uh, just want to make sure we kind of identify the right cheese. It looks like uh, Funky Wit is uh, our beer that has come around. That's going to be paired with the uh, Nickajack from Sequatchie Cove. That's the uh, wash rind cheese that's uh, uh, not so white, but a little bit more yellow uh, in the center. Yeah. And uh, that one is, uh, it's aged for, both of, the, both of the wash rind cheeses are aged for two months. Um, the Nickajack is uh, washed with uh, cider which is, I think, really cool. So, um, and the pairing worked out really well uh, when we tried it out, too. So, uh, Talk a little bit about Funky Wit. Uh, so this is sort of a, uh, a riff on a, uh, a Belgian wit beer, white beer, so, you know, which is a uh, you know, traditionally uh, you know, one type of yeast strain. And then uh, it's uh, on the brew house side, there's you know, typically coriander and orange peel. So you get that really nice sort of orangey character. There's been, uh, it's one, I'd say it's, uh, it's a beer style that almost died. Uh, and then it was sort of uh, revived. And now it's, uh, you know, it's probably one of the more mass-produced beers. It's sort of uh, what we, some people identify as faux craft beers. Um, you know, uh, Blue Moon, uh, Shock Top, you know, some of the, some of the lar- really large mega breweries are really capitalizing on this flavor profile because, Hey, it's a great flavor profile, um, you know. And there's, you know, Hugarden Garden and all kinds of other different styles that are still kind of under these, under these umbrellas uh, of of, the, of production. But uh, we love the style too, and uh, you know, we thought it would be fun to do a, a, an oak age version of this. And so, uh, both of our beers sort of start off in individual wine barrels before they ever went to fooder. And so, our fooder uh, or our funky wit is um, is pretty traditional. It's uh, you know, it's, it's a Pilsner malt, it's um, unmalted wheat, and it's uh, about 10% oats uh, to give it some, give it some nice mouthfeel. And then uh, in the kettle, we do Indian coriander, which gives a really nice citrus note. Uh, we do some uh, dried sweet orange peel, and we do some black peppercorn. And then, um, 
you know, in a, in a similar way that uh, Nathan explained that he uses his fooders, we, we ferment uh, in stainless uh, with only Saccharomyces, just the witch strain, for about a week, I'd say seven to ten days. And then we, um, well, originally what we did was we racked these to, to individual wine barrels. And then um, we grew up some cultures of, uh, you know, just a mix of different Britannomyces strains, Lactobacillus and Pediococcus, and inoculated the barrels, and then, you know, waited several months, close to a year, and really liked the character. And then, uh, you know, that was just going to continue to be a barrel-aged, you know, individual wine barrel-aged beer for us that we were going to scale in wine barrels until we got a line on these fooders. And then, you know, that was kind of a, a home-run brand for us, and so we decided that, uh, hey, this is a beer that we've got to put in one of the fooders. So our very first fooder, our first two fooders were these two beers. And... Um, so we seeded the fooder with the barrels and basically topped up the fooders, you know, with fresh beer. And uh, we are now on, uh, we've just packaged our second run off of these. And uh, so another difference, you know, Nathan said that, you know, they, they package all of their uh, fooder beer and then sort of reset the fooder and then start over again. Um, we're kind of, what we're doing is sort of pulling off a bit, maybe half, and then feeding the fooder again, um, which is kind of an experiment for us. Uh, we don't have a playbook on <laughs> you know, how to do this. Uh, but you know, I am concerned about the beer drifting from, you know, off of its, um, uh, the spec that we're looking for. And so you know, we're going to uh, monitor this and rack a lot of barrels, that we're, or rack a few barrels that we'll probably keep as mother barrels to sort of start again clean if we need to. So that's sort of our approach to it. So hope you really enjoy it. And uh, I guess we'll keep moving on. Yeah, and I'm gonna um, um, pop in for a second and just talk about. So, um, with uh, ornithology, um, uh, a lot of times we are um, bringing the uh, you know, emptying the food in between uses. But for the last beer we're gonna have, we've been experimenting actually with what Phil's been talking about, um, which is since we have to double double batch to fill up one of the one of our fooders. A lot of times um, when we're pulling out a for for Baron Corvo or Beer de Guard, which is sort of a stronger uh, beer with a bit more sort of complexity. Um, we, we'll do the same thing where we'll take out half that's already been in there for like six weeks, maybe eight weeks, and then have, as soon as we take it um, half out, we have a second batch ready to go right in to fill up because we don't want to keep that empty headspace in there and worry about oxygen issues. And what that does is create like a sort of a Solera system going forward, right? So if we keep doing that in, in perpetuity for years, then um, like, like Phil will have going then you're going to have 10 years down the road, you're still going to have some of that original batch one in there, all right, which is, uh, which is pretty incredible, you know, and it, it's just adding complexity over the years. But when you're doing that, you really have, like Phil was um, uh, referring to, you really have to be prepared for um, that this is an evolving thing. And one term that's used for these sort of beers that we're talking about is wild beer, right? So wild by definition, right? So it's, un it's something that's untamed. And so, like, um, uh, when I was putting together, when we were working on the pitch for this salon, I thought that this name, uh, Food or Beer, A Search for Delicious, sort of made sense, right? Because it's, this is a journey. This is relatively new to us as relatively young breweries. Um, uh, we're embracing all these sort of mixed cultures and so-called so wild yeast. We get, I got mine from a yeast bank. I mean, I didn't, I didn't go out and capture it someplace. Um, like a stallion or something. Um, but um, so I was saying before that we named this beer Ornette after Ornette Coleman. 
And Ornette Coleman one time said that he's in love with change because it keeps changing, right? So that's sort of the philosophy that, that I use with these fooder beers where um, we've repitched this house culture several hundred times in, in, in a couple of years. And I know exactly what it was because I worked the yeast lab to put the whole thing together. If someone had to tell me genetically what was going on right now, I couldn't tell you. I could tell you my impressions of what's going on and through sensory and tasting every day of what's going on and the evolution of what's happening. But I couldn't tell you what percent was this, what percent was that. Um, and so, it's, and it's kind of funny because we're, so we're doing these beers, right? Right next to doing our dry hop pale ale and our pale smoked beer and all those Saccharomyces, Brewer's yeast beers, um, you know, if we're doing our jobs well, should taste consistent like the, 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 every single time, right? Or, or we're not doing our job very well, right? We're doing something wrong with process. If, the rest, if you're following the recipe, it should pretty much taste predictably the same. Whereas um, all of these so-called wild beers that are coming out of our fooders are actually going to taste slightly different um, every time. And a lot of these beers are really built to be bottled in bottle condition because then... Um, when we release the beers at six or eight weeks of maturation with our house character, they have a small wild side. Um, a lot of our beers would have a pH of around four or one. You know, a traditional Saccharomyces beers, about four or five, something like that. You know, our beers are around four or one right now. They're coming out of fooder. Um, if you sit on those, you might see some some pH drop, and but you'll definitely see. And one thing that we can get, we could talk for hours about this. So we're not going to get too into it. Is this idea of sour beer, which I, a term that I I, I kind of hate. Um, and people say, well, you're doing these beers uh, out of fooder, um, and there's pretenomyces in there, and there's some, some lactic influence, and these are sour beers, right? I don't think they're particularly, I don't think ornithology is a particularly sour beer. I think it's a relatively soft beer. It's got nuance. It's, it's really a Brett-driven beer. It's really about the, the esters that are being created for pretenomyces and all these wonderful flavor compounds that will, com those compounds will compound over time as Britannomyces is able to scavenge very long-chain sugars, esterize fatty acids, and create these really magnificent tropical fruit and spicy flavors. And so ornithology, when it's fresh at eight weeks, has a small wild side that I find very enticing. It's a very aromatic beer. It's really driven through the nose. If that's cellared for six months, it's a completely different beer. Um, if it's cellared for a year, it becomes even a completely different beer from that. So if you had bottles of these that you could then drink at three months or six months or nine months or a year, it'd almost be like with Orval, right? With some people like Orval at three months or six months or two years or five years when I think they say best drunk by five years um, on their packaging. And so if you can embrace this journey or this, you know, that you're on the search, you know, um, then it's very exciting, but you have to have the right mindset and the right constitution and the right sanity for it right because if it, it can you know it can be stressful if, if things aren't moving along at the pace that you want um speaking of pace that you want um so one difference that we've talked about is um phil brought up the word pediococcus so pediococcus is a lactic acid producing bacteria um lactobacillus is also a lactic acid producing bacteria they work very differently um when we think of fooders we think of um um, uh, generally, uh, how they've been used to date in the brewing industry would be like at a brewery, like a story brewery like Rodenbach in Belgium, who has the largest collection of fooders in the world that I know of. 
Um, they have fooders that are more than 100 years old. They have several warehouses, hundreds and hundreds of these things. You get lost in it, apparently. I've never visited, just read the stories. Um, but, um, so a lot of these fooders are used for long-term acidification of beers. That's not really how we're using them, but that's how traditionally a lot of breweries are using these uh, vessels for, right? And so when you introduce Pediococcus, you can get to very low pHs, but Pediococcus is also creating a lot of byproducts that would be considered off or fouling flavors and textures that need time. It's actually, so it's creating this, what's called ropiness, right? So it's sort of like slimy carbohydrate um, chains that is a really good food for Britannomyces over long periods of time. But when those beers are drunk young, I don't know if anyone's ever gotten a, a ropey bottle of a, 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 a you know, Phantom or something like that. You know, it's this like this slimy kind of thing that's called the beers going through sickness and traditionally. And that can actually make for very wonderful and very acidic beers in the future. Um, but since we've intentionally not introduced Pediococcus because we're trying to get on this a different time frame and create different kind of Brett focused beers and not particularly acidic beers, that is a big difference in in, in, in the kind of sort of cocktail that we're, we're using is that we've intentionally not introduced Pediococcus um, in, into our brewery. Not to say that couldn't show up at some point and we will deal with that accordingly, but we're just using slightly different tools to arrive at different beers that we're looking for. Um, I think are people getting almost ready for their, their, their next beer. Have we gotten into the uh, food or saison is already in glasses? All right, so why don't you talk about food or saison a bit and then I'll wrap up with Baron Corvo. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, as Nathan mentioned, uh, I don't know if he said maddening or insanity or something along those lines, uh, definitely in that, in that ballpark. Uh, yeah, pediococcus is uh, one of those things that you kind of, you add for a deeper complexity, but it does take more time. And uh, so these beers, as he mentioned, uh, you know, bottle conditioning is appropriate for these beers. We bottle condition both of these beers as well. And, you know, I'd say it, there's a pretty big value add uh, to this, you know, it's it's expensive for a small brewer like us, or or like Right Proper, to make a beer like this that's bottle conditioned because, you know, it's, you know, in some cases with these beers, you know, we're going, uh, we've gone anywhere from eight weeks, you know, two months to like five months of bottle conditioning before we feel like some of these beers are ready. That's a long time to sit on packaged beer and that's eating up all kinds of real estate, that you're keeping temperature controlled. Um, you know, it's uh, my partner, uh, Russ, who's more the CFO, like uh, I think he's, uh, these beers drive him insane. Um, but, you know, you got to like the results. There's no, uh, there's no easy way, there's no shortcut to get there, I think. So um, talk a little bit about food or saison. Production methods are very similar to Funky Wit. It's sort of like this uh, mixed fermentation riff on a saison. Uh, it's a pretty classic, straightforward saison in the uh, on the brew house side, and the uh, um, you know we we ferment once again seven to ten days or so uh, in stainless, only Saccharomyces. Um, this one we actually seeded a little bit from the funky wit fooder, and um, we we had hit it with some other cultures, and then we felt like it was not getting the acid production that it needed. Uh, early on, so we, uh, we, we kind of gave it a little help from the funky wit. And uh, so far, we're kind of using this in the same way. We've, we've done these beers sort of in unison, because they both have pediococcus, and they both develop, 
I think, flavors and maturity that we like uh, in a similar time frame. And so we tend to package these beers around the same time so far, which has only been twice. Um, and then, uh, you know, top, feed, feed the fooder again. But once again, we're going to bank, bank this beer too and hope it doesn't drift too much. Um, the cheese that's going with this is the other Wash Rhine cheese, uh, which is called Funkmeister. It's from a, uh, a creamery in uh, Longmont, Colorado called Haystack Mountain, which is known for uh, goat cheeses. Um, this one is a, cow, a raw cow's milk uh, double cream Wash Rhine cheese, and it's uh, washed with a brine. And it gives it, I think, a really nice funkiness. Uh, when we tried this pairing, we were all kind of freaking out about it uh, back at the brewery. The brewers were, I and mean, we mowed through a lot of it. <laughs> so uh, it was cool. Those guys, uh, they were really nice guys. We traded them some beer for cheese. They sent us two pounds of this, and it's all gone. So, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's pretty much all I got on uh, Fooder Saison. I think uh, we, we do want, uh, after Nathan talks a little bit about the, the last beer, you know, maybe preserve a little bit of time for questions. Yeah. So. So, so I think the the if our people are draining their current glasses, we'll start pouring up Baron Corbo. Um, so um, we brought uh, two of the four be fooder beers that we do. There's another fooder beer on the floor called Astro Weeks, which is a dry hopped uh, fooder beer, which was kind of an experiment because generally one of the advantages, again, of having a conical bottom in, in a stainless steel tank is that you can use it efficiently to pull yeast, but then when you dry hop in a conical tank, all of the, uh, all of the hops settle down in the cone, and you can very efficiently pull bright beer from above where all the dry hops settled. So we're doing that in a flat bottom oak tank, which we had never tried before. We were a little concerned about it, but we just found that when we did the transfer, if we ran the, the pump at a very low, uh, so the, we have a variable... Uh, drive on it so we can say exactly what percentage power it's using. We ran it really, really low, so the transfer was four or five times longer than uh, the normal beer, and it came out very well. So we found that we could dry hop in the fooder, which we were a little scared about, but now we know we can do it, and we can do it as much as we want. So if you haven't had a chance, that's we'll be pouring until 11, I guess is when this goes to tonight. Um, so that's a beer on the floor down there, another fooder beer that we do. <coughs> but the two I brought to the salon... I think are two beers that reference the history of so-called farmhouse brewing from northern France and southern Belgium, right? So let's get in our time machine and go back 150 years, and, you know, you lived in an agricultural area in, in this sort of nebulous zone between these two modern countries now, um, and you were you had a farm, and you're, you had your, you know, um, your... Uh, weed or oats or spelt or whatever you're growing, and so that would become your. You'd cr create one beer for everyday, all day drinking, which would be maybe two or three percent alcohol, which would be similar to like ornithology, the grisette that we had early on. And even your kids would have been drinking it because you wouldn't drink water because it wasn't safe. So you'd be drinking this very low alcohol beer during the day, and even into the night. But then the farmer, or possibly more realistically, depending on how far back you go, the farmer's wife, seeing as how. So if we as a human family have been uh, endeavoring in fermentation for 10,000 years, ever since we started sort of planting crops, it really, really was the domain of women for a very, very large percentage of that, you know, for thousands and thousands of years. And then men found that they com could commoditize beer and it became the domain of men for a long time, which is a terrible, terrible travesty. Um, but now we, there are women 
luckily that in more and more numbers that have been joining the, the, the brewing community, um, which is a wonderful thing. But um, whether that was the, the farmer or the farmer's wife brewing this everyday beer like uh, a grisette, they were also brewing a provisional stronger beer um, called a beer to guard. And this is our interpretation of what we think beer to guard maybe could have tasted like um, from reading the literature. It would have been a stronger beer, um, a beer meant for aging, probably would have ended up in an oak cast for long-term aging, sort of like what we're doing. Um, and it's a, a maltier, stronger beer. This beer is 7% alcohol. Um, so that farm, small farmhouse brewery would have been producing a beer for special occasions, for weddings or birthdays. There's no weekends back then, right? So just whenever, you know, the, uh, they didn't have, maybe in the winter when they weren't working so hard, they'd be drinking uh, these sort of beers. And so I wanted to bring two of the beers that I think are, so one thing that we hear a lot about in the brewing community now in craft brewing is innovation, right? And some people think this is very innovative work using uh, uh, you know, wood or fooders or cask or whatever. It's really, we really think about it as more of a revival, right? right? It's just, this is the way things were for the longest time. How long have we been using stainless steel for it really, right? Um, so I don't think it's particularly innovative. We do a lot of beers that, that reference the long history we do a, a, a lot of pre-hopped beers at our brewery. Um, on Tuesday, if nobody's doing anything else, uh, we're uh, Stan Hieronymus, who's uh, a, 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 my favorite beer writer. He's from St. Louis, he, or not really, he lives in St. Louis though. Phil knows him pretty well. Um, so Stan is in town for Savor. He did a really wonderful uh, event last night here at Salon. But then he's in town for doing the, the National Homebrewers Conference. He is doing, uh, he's coming by our brewery on Tuesday to do one of these, what we call American Primitive Beers, that references this long history of brewing. And it'll be mainly driven by um, edible botanicals and roots than it is. The only hops we're going to use are Native American hops called Neomexicanus hops, uh, which have like an alpha acid of 2% or something like that, you know. So, so we're really interested in this long, or I am particularly interested in this long history of fermentation and how it blends in with alchemy and shamanism. And I'm kind of a touchy-feely kind of person. So this is our interpretation of what I kind of think beer de garde maybe was kind of like. Modern French beer de garde are generally lagers, which is, this is not. <laughs> um, but lagers have only really been brewed efficiently for like a little over 100 years, right? And these, yeah, exactly, yeah. And, 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 and so, it's, so this is our interpretation of, of, of beer to guard. Um, and this is a beer that a lot of times we do not drain the food around, like I was saying, we'll only do half. And this beer, every time you have it, different releases will actually probably grow in complexity. And then um, for a second, I want to talk about um, on further use of, we're not using our brewery, I only speak for our brewery, we're not using these fooders to impart a wood character to the beer. They're just a great medium for holding our house mix culture. We get a little tannin pickup, uh, which can help a beer like Ornithology taste a little larger than it is, helps fill out the flavor a little bit with the extra tannin. Um, but we're not getting like these big bourbon flavors, a big red, red wine character. But what we do do is um, we'll, we'll take sections when we can, when we can afford to buy smaller casks, um, we will then start taking sections of the fooder out um, instead of running it off to be keg, kegged off into smaller casks. So then we have, 
wine barrel versions uh, and gin barrel versions of ornithology going, and we have rum or bourbon barrels of, of Baron Corvo going. And so those can be mixed into the future on blends and even small. I'm not a big fan of like bourbon influenced beers. Um, a lot of them, are, I think, are just particularly heavy handed, you know. So even if we just mix in 10% or 5% of maybe something that a uh, 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 Baron Corvo that's been, um, you know, in a uh, use wine, uh, bourbon barrel for a, a few months, it can just add a little depth. And if we're actually looking for some spirit character, oak character, that's why we have this library of smaller casks. Um, it's all about surface space, right? So in a smaller cask, you're going to pick up that character a lot faster because a lot more surface contact area, whereas in the fooder, it's much more dispersed. So, you know, it's not getting that sort of classic wood, um, coconut, and sort of uh, 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 oak flavors. Um, so... I hope you enjoy uh, Baron Corvo. And should we do questions now, or should I wait to be prompted on questions? Okay. Who's got questions? Oh, that's what I was just talking about, sort of, with the, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, who has any questions? Nathan or Phil, can you explain a little bit more about the term fooder? Yeah, I'll jump in for a second and just say that so fooder is a Dutch, Dutch word as it's spelled in this program, F-O-E-D-E-R. Then there's a, 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 a French version, which is F-O-U-D-R-E, uh, kind of pronounced. I'm not, I don't speak either language. I'm going to say fooder. Peter Buchart was uh, in there yesterday um, taking a uh, barrel apart talking about his new book about what age beers he was saying something similar to that which was kind of like fooder um, uh, which, um, so um, but it sort of characterizes any large oak tank over maybe about 600 liters okay so like a large like we have some sherry casks at the brew pub which are 500 liters and they still look like large wine barrels you know once you get a bit larger than that, then it takes on this new term of fooder, and fooders are either upright or they're horizontal or they're oval-shaped. But it would really sort of be any large, not even generally oak, you know, but it could be made out of, you see them out of chestnut and all kinds of different um, uh, woods, really, but oak would be the traditional. So kind of any oak environment over about 600 liters. And does anybody have Peter Buchart in a new book about wood beers? So we wrote it with Dick Cantwell. They had a, a like I said, they did a salon next door yesterday. There's this picture of the largest fooder in the world, which is over in France. And like ours are 45 hecto, yours are 60 barrel. Seems like a lot. You know, it's a lot. You know, so you know, yeah, right. It's, it's a lot of beer. This one in France that's made. Uh, it's no longer in use, but it, it holds I think a million liters. And it took t 200 trees in 18 years to build. Because you have to, what's ha I'm not going to get too into it, read the book, because th they can, you know, there's a lot more technical detail. You know, but, but when you're building large I, I oak tanks, you have to find the right kind of wood that doesn't have knots in it, and then the veins are writing, running in the same way, so you don't have leaks through the veins and things. So to find the amount of trees, to, and I think there was a, a, a war in between the 18 years. That's why it took so long. You know, that, like, interrupted things for a few years. But still, 200 trees, 18 years, and they have this picture, and it's just the biggest thing you've ever seen in your life. And it's no longer, it's a museum piece now, but it was used by a, a digestive producer for a number of years. So a quick follow-up. Does that relate to the use of wooden vessels for conditioning in British beers traditionally? 
Liquid Fooder also. You know, so you read some of the books about British brewing history. Yeah. And there's the infamous, like, when the flood. Borders. Yeah, yeah. Not just the or flood, but yeah. also brewers having like dinner parties inside. Yeah, inside. Giant yeah, yeah. Wooden I'm not going to speak to it. I don't know if you want to speak to it. I don't know enough about uh, the British British tradition and the. Use I don't of have anything fooders. to add to that. So, yeah. Um, but if you see Stan, but if you find out, I'd love to hear about he, it. Yeah, he's really good with that kind of the deep history kind of question. Um, what other questions do people have? And Phil so the next one. you <laughs> you mentioned a little bit about uh, the adding new fresh beer on top of the old beer being similar to Solera. So yep. can you talk a little bit about the difference between fooders and Solera, the process, and fooder, the vessel, or what's the relationship there? Yeah, I'd say, uh, I, I mean, I'm not a Solera expert, but we do some stuff that we kind of identify as modified Solera. Um, I would say in the case of the fooders where we're pulling off volume and then we're feeding the fooders, it's probably a little bit less uh, calculated and precise and on uh, a looser schedule than when we do other type of Solera beers. We have a, um, a beer called Anniversaria. As the name uh, implies, uh, it's around our anniversary every year that we release this beer. So it's an annual thing that we do where we're blending... Uh, it's 100% bread. Um, you know, the first year, um, we barrel-aged it for a year. And then when we went to, uh, when it was a year in, we blended it uh, about one-third barrel-aged to two-thirds fresh. And, uh, and then once we blended all the beer together, we refilled the barrels, packaged off the rest, and then we do this again the following year. So there's always this thread of original beer in there, much like pulling off the fooder and feeding the fooder. That in that way, where I think it's, uh, and I'm totally talking out my ass here, um, where I think it's, you know, where we're doing this on an annual basis and it's very, you know, calculated and we're kind of doing the same thing year in and year out. I I think that's probably a little bit more uh, reminiscent of a true Solera versus where we're pulling off the fooder and we taste through sensory and we think it's ready and we decide we're going to package some and then we're going to top it up and feed it. Um, that to me is like whenever the beer is ready, it's not on more of like an annualized basis. So. Any any other questions? I think we are like yeah. We're there's another salon at nine fifteen, so I don't know if they gotta clean and reset the room or, or what. <laughs> Andy could speak to that more, but we're good. Give it up to those guys. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you for listening to this recording from Savor 2016, brought to you by the Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio. You can find the rest of the salons from Savor 2016, as well as all of the salons from previous years of Savor, at craftbeerradio.com slash savor or on craftbeer.com. Craft Beer Radio is a weekly beer podcast that you can listen to on iTunes or from our website at craftbeerradio.com.